Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, you're listening to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, hosted by Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and today I'm speaking with Gwen Romack, who is the Senior Director of Legal and Regulatory Compliance at VMware, where she's been for the past four years. Prior to that role, she spent about 20 years at HP, growing her career first outside of compliance and then in the area of ethics and compliance, building a public sector program. She's built programs throughout her career, and as she will mention, she's not an attorney. We started a conversation about what we think makes a dream team, and it was such an interesting conversation. I thought that we would spend our time talking about that today. So, Gwen, thank you so much for being here today. And before we build our perfect team, can you tell us a bit about your background? Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. I love what you and Mary have been doing with this podcast, so I'm delighted to have been invited. Um, So I spent the early part of my career doing mostly process improvement, sales operations, and project management type roles at HP. Then I moved into strategy and chief of staff type roles, running large corporate programs like reorganizations and mergers and acquisitions, that kind of thing. Uh, eventually, I was asked by the legal team to help out with a risk assessment and a proposal around the company's U.S. public sector business. And that project actually ended up putting me on the ethics and compliance path I've been on oh, about 14 years now. Um, it started with, at the end of the assessment, realizing we needed a public sector compliance focus. So we created a program literally from scratch for a $5 billion revenue stream. And I remember distinctly sitting on a beach on vacation reading the federal sentencing guidelines and the McNulty memo for the first time (laughs) and wondering (laughs) what on earth I got myself into. Um, But I had incredible support from the lawyers who were helping build the team. And without their help and instruction, I, I certainly couldn't have done it. But it really gave me a lot of exposure to the basic concepts of building an effective program. And our success there led into me taking on roles helping to mature the company's anti-corruption program and our ethics program and privacy. And it it really just grew um, and evolved. And I got exposed to so many great aspects of, frankly, the company and the different pillars of of compliance programs. So it was a really lucky road I was on. Yeah, and I remember, you know, talking with you about so many of these different things. And when I've had questions about different parts of uh, programs or other things, you almost always have a, when I did this or I saw that. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure some days are better than others when you're thinking about that. But, you know, with those experiences, you've obviously seen a lot of things that have worked and not worked in organizations. So let's start talking about, you know, building your dream team. Yeah. And, you know, working at HP with a company that big, 350,000 employees all over the world, somebody's always up to something exciting um, that gave us great, I'll say in air quotes, experience with investigations and regulators and that kind of thing. So, um, so I think the dream team, you know, obviously it depends on the size of the company and their risk profile, what industry they're in, how they go to market, you know, different elements that create the risk profile. But generally, I look at the most critical thing as building a team of complementary skill sets 
where it's cost effective for the organization. You know, obviously that's not a choice usually. We don't get an endless budget. Uh, but also creates a growth path for the employees on the team to be able to rotate around, get exposure to different parts of, again, the business, different parts of running a compliance program. In the, you know, mid to large multinationals where I've worked, the model that I have, I have found to be most successful is a blend of attorney and non-attorney roles. So people assigned to work that really plays to their strengths at the best, you know, at the best price point, basically. Okay. Um, there are a few key roles, though, that I, I always suggest, I always look for, and I map them in my mind to sort of four buckets. When I think about an effective compliance program, <laughs> looking back to those old federal sentencing guidelines and, and even the updated DOJ guidance that's come out over the years, I sort of put, put the work into four big buckets. And so I think about the team aligned to the skills you need to be really effective in each of those buckets. Absolutely. And then where do you first start when you think about that? So, so the first bucket for me is awareness. Um, so building awareness and understanding with your employees, with your suppliers, with your partners, your freight forwarders, um, sort of your ecosystem of people who can create risk or prevent risk for you. So that's having really effective policies that are written in simple speak that everyone can follow, fun and engaging training, fun and engaging compliance communication campaigns, you know, reminders throughout the year that are cute and catchy. Uh, anything that has to happen around taking what is usually heavy legalese regulatory concepts and simplifying them in a way that your audience, whether it be internal or external, can really absorb. I feel like that's your first line of defense. And yeah. and. The skills you need for that really are more communications and visual art and being able to take those tough concepts and make them easy. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I also feel like um, as an attorney, um, I can be thorough and I, I'm not terrible at writing some of that, but I know that I need somebody else, like somebody in a communications or someone who's not so deeply steeped in what they're trying to do for the policy um, to make things more user friendly. I mean, I don't, I, I want it to be something people aren't going to roll their eyes or relate to. So I think as an attorney, um, it's been something that's really important. I've been very fortunate in, in both, both of the roles I've been in for the longest time to have communications or other training and development team members who know how to make it like creative and kind of have a vision that comes from it. It's like, make me sound like what I would like this to sound like, not the way <laughs> I just wrote this as. Yeah, it, that it, is it, so I mean, it's true. Huge. It makes a, and it yeah. makes a huge difference at, from my side to know that I, you know, that somebody's going to be able to do that and help not lose a meaning. So it's a really important role. It is, and it's it's an art, you know. And I often need a lawyer to make me not as funny. Sometimes I'm too funny when I draft something, <laughs> and they have to reel me back in. Um, so that's one kind of key area that sort of those soft skills and that communication piece. And the second bucket I think about is. Um, process controls. So how as a company throughout finance, marketing, sales, procurement, you know, all the different corners of the company, how are we preventing and detecting bad stuff? And that for me, I have found the most success using folks who are heavy in process, process design, process improvement skills, and project management. And if you can find one person that has both, that's the secret sauce. Because what, what I look for is someone who I can, 
you know, I can teach them the regulatory underpinning or the, the risk concept. I can go over with them internal audit findings or the outcome of an investigation and say, okay, we got to go plug this hole. Um, here's the stakeholders across the different groups. Go work with them, usually through influence. Um, you know, make friends and convince them they want to put this process control in place <laughs> and then build it, make sure it's effective, get everyone on the same page. That takes, um, you know, that takes that project management and that process mindset. And ideally, if you can find someone who's actually worked in those areas, you know, really been in the business roles that speak the language, know the systems, have friends they can call in for favors, <laughs> uh, that's even better. So I look for folks, to, even if they don't have that compliance background, I can give them that. Right. And I think that sometimes, and I've, I've heard about this in different programs and seen it, is that sometimes someone will come in on a rotation or something from another group. So even if you don't have the skill set or the individual forever or can't have it, just bringing that knowledge and mindset in is also something that can you know help places too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I Go ahead. ahead. And I know that I know that you got some more points on that. Yeah, well, I was going to jump to the third bucket. But but when you just talked about the rotation, it made me think I I used to watch at HP internal audit was really good about rotating in business folks and really taking advantage of their their knowledge and experience deep down in the processes and the day to day operations. And interestingly, that's sort of my third bucket. So my third bucket is um, monitoring and assurance. It's the people who are analytical, they can take data, look for macro trends, they can drill into the process and critically, with a critical eye, sort of figure out, is it working? I can't tell you how many times over the years we'd put a process in place and we would go look and make sure their folks are following the process and they were. That's not the same thing as the process is getting the outcome you need it to get. Um, Sometimes you know, processes don't work the way you want and they don't create the desired outcome. So obviously relying heavily on a great relationship with internal audit is important. Um, But I like to have folks in my team who can look at our own work product, look at the processes we've gone out and and helped implement in the organization and really take a look at, are they working? Are they effective? Are they doing what we think they ought to be doing? Yeah, I think the internal audit relationship can make such a difference because I've seen ones that work well and ones that are more challenging. And, you know, I just this past week, I was talking to some members of our internal audit team and just the, we you know, the interchange of ideas and where we could both sort of help each other, um, it, both build relationships and look at things. I mean, it just, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really fantastic feeling and a great kind of trust level to know that you're all kind of watching out. Oh, yeah. And you can cast such a wider net. I mean, internal audit's another area where they rarely have a huge budget and lots of people with bandwidth. So if you yeah. can partner on, here's the stuff my team's going to keep an eye on and go, you know, kind of go poke at. Here's the, the trends we're seeing or the red flags that you guys maybe want to handle more formally. Um, Complement each other's work again with sharing that information. That is so huge. Um, so you're right. That's another relationship that, that really has to be symbiotic. Yeah. And you have a fourth pillar. What's I that? do have a fourth. So my, the fourth pillar is my catch-all for everything else. Uh, I haven't come up with a clever name, but usually I call it just sort of mitigation. So this is where I really put a heavy focus on having an attorney usually helping. Um, so I tuck things in here like monitoring, uh, monitoring the regulatory and the enforcement environment. What is going on out there? 
what's being enforced, what trends are popping up in uh, MPAs or DPAs, really reading through and translating that into the company's risk profile and our risk tolerance and being able to make those nuanced judgments about mm, this is something we need to put some some focus on, keeping us aware, sort of looking outward, you know, outward into the industry, dealing with investigations, either internally when we find something and needing to think through what's an adequate remediation for that, dealing with government inquiries when they inevitably come, um, providing compliance counseling, you know, things like business gifts and courtesies, uh, DDQs that come in with, uh, you know, maybe something in the gray space we have to figure out. So I really like having a, an attorney available who's steeped in all those nuances, who also understands all the compliance, everything going on across all the pillars, basically, right. who can help us have that critical eye. You know, how effectively are we doing our work? Do we have any blind spots? Um, you know, that kind of thing. Um, no, that's, um, that's great. Now, let me ask a question about now that you've talked about that um, a little bit, how do you see the role of the attorney versus the non-attorney? I know that, um, that you know, you've already just talked a bit about the mitigation and direction, but how, how, do you, how are you now allocate, allocating the resources on our you know, well-pillared team? Yeah, so, you know, as always, I'll, I'll pretend to be a lawyer and say it depends. Uh, I've learned I've learned that lingo at least. Um, so it depends on the budget, depends on the the folks on the team, of course, and what their interests are. But I, I, I try to treat it a bit like a help desk model, where you've got front desk, lower cost resources. I've offshored a lot of ethics and compliance work successfully to India and Costa Rica and other low cost locations. Um, and you've got sort of the you know the second level desk where harder questions can be answered and issue spotting can happen. And then I try to use the attorneys for, like I said, more of that when we're in a gray space, when we're in a nuanced area, or when, frankly, the folks in the ethics and compliance team who might be doing a process every day, they might get a blind spot, not even realize something is happening that they need to be, um, you know, tuning into or looking for a red flag around. So I think it it's helpful if everybody works you know, again, sort of in conjunction and complementary, but I, I look to the attorneys to be a bit more in the thought leadership, big picture space mm-hmm. and helping to guide sort of the rest of us around how we're doing and what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I think is, you know, the idea that everybody on the team has to learn the business operations. In that, in that situation, I don't think it matters if someone's an attorney or a non-attorney, because mm-hmm. if you don't know the business and you can't speak the language of the people in the business, you, you, it doesn't, you know, that for them, it becomes less significant and, and less important. If you're actually knowing what they're doing, um, I think it makes a, a huge difference. And I think that way from a, you know, from a perspective, that one thing on the team, it doesn't matter what you are if you're not going to relate to um, the rest of the, the people you're working with out there. Oh, that's totally true. And from the, you know, I've seen over the years, the non-attorney career path really start to to develop and explode. But I've also seen if if you're not conscious about giving your, your folks, attorneys and non-attorneys, ways to rotate through different parts of the program, they'll get bored. Um, you know, if one person is stuck doing business gifts and courtesies for three years, they will lose their mind, uh, in, in my experience. Um, so have the person responsible for the third party due diligence job swap, 
with the gifts and courtesies person or do 50, 50, um, you know, find different ways for folks to shadow audit or process improvements and just be able to explore the different parts of the program itself, uh, the ethics and compliance program and not get stuck sort of in one area of expertise. That's the one key thing is you've got to let folks move between the pillars. Right. Now that makes sense. Um, I mean, working together and, and I, you know, talking about it, you, you have a really good analogy on it. So I was hoping you could show that. <laughs> yes. My, yeah, this, so this is my new way I describe this to people when building a new home, which I've never had the torture uh, of doing, but when building a new home, you know, you really need a great architect and you need a great general contractor and you need all the subs who come in and are experts at their respective roles. And they all, you know, they all have to kind of work together against the same blueprints. They're all trying to satisfy the same customer, deliver on time, and have the house look and work the way you want. But they bring very different skills and expertise to the build. Some of them can swap and do some things for the other. Uh, they may have overlaps in their skill sets. But I don't want a general contractor figuring out the engineering load on my, you know, on my second story. And I really don't want an architect um picking the subs that are going to come in and, and do the work the way it needs to be done. So that to me is a great example of the attorney and non-attorney um, complementary skill set. You need the architect and the, the general contractor. Yeah. And I don't know which one of the two of those I, I am when you put it in that way, but I can tell you that you sound <laughs> like you know a lot more about it for somebody, than, for somebody who hasn't uh, done that. Uh, talking about knowledge and non-knowledge, you know, uh, you know, you talked about attorney being attorney versus non-attorney. We haven't really mm -hmm. talked that much about gender. So, have you experienced any of the, um, you know, uh, challenges based on that? Um, you know, that you'd want to talk about a little bit. Yeah, I mean, certainly imposter syndrome. I know we've talked about that a lot with your. You've talked about that a lot with other guests on this podcast, and it's comforting, frankly, to hear other women talk about it and own up to it. I suffered terribly from the traditional gender-related imposter syndrome for really most of my career. No matter how successful I was, no matter how fast I was promoted, I always had that lurking doubt. And, you know, I don't know if it's the magic of re reaching a certain age or <laughs> being, you know, enough, enough years of success, but that largely dissipated over time. Certainly hearing about imposter syndrome from Women I respected also helped a lot, which is part of why I love what you're doing um, with this podcast. It makes it more real. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, though, I decided to replace one neuroses with another. Uh, <laughs> and I decided <laughs> to adopt a new imposter syndrome related to, you know, what we've been talking about, being a non-attorney. Uh, a lot of the roles, particularly at my level of seniority, uh, they, you know, companies want an attorney in that role. And I interpreted that for a long time as, you know, what's wrong with me? Do I need to go get my, my JD, you know, go, go sort of suspend things and go to law school? I still today read job descriptions that every single item on that list I've done, I can do with one arm tied behind my back. And then you get to the bottom and it says JD required, must be active in a bar. Um, so that's been... The one I've replaced with the, you know, instead of gender, I focus on that now and, and shouldn't, and I have to stop myself. I will well, say I've seen it improving. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot more consciousness when folks are sitting down and really thinking about how to design the, the resources, you know, like you said, building the dream team. Not everybody on that team needs to be an attorney. 
not everybody needs to be at that price point. They really are complementary skills. And folks seem to be, I think, getting more, you know, more tuned into that. But I'd love to see more job recs out there for do not need a JD. <laughs> right. Well, as we also talked about with imposter syndrome or non or, or just generally, or, and this has been, and I apologize to anyone listening if I've said this to you before, but and you and I talked about it, the idea of, you know, I always think, you know, just go for it. Um, you know, a mm. lot of times men mm. will, will look at something that says JD, or as I often say, speaks fluent Spanish. I would look at something like that and say, you know, I really can't do this. I, I don't speak Spanish. And some men will look at it and like, meh, you know, ordered a cerveza once in Mexico. I'm, I'm, I'm good, you know, and, and they may not figure it out. Get, get the job, but, you know, at least putting it in there. And, you know, I've mm-hmm. also seen that the same thing is that a lot of times the people with the imposter syndrome are very, usually the most substantive ones there. The imposters are the ones who it would never occur to. Oh, you're so right. That's a great way to frame that. You're so right. If you're the one doubting yourself and thinking critically, you're probably more qualified than the guy next to you that's not male or female. You're, you're <laughs> so right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things, you know, I think, that, you know, to do that is, um, as you said, it's been changing. I mean, what, you know, what else do you think you would want, want to see, or, you know, in terms of that change other than the job descriptions? I mean, within sort of the team structure as well, now that we have ours, um, yeah. you know, I am a big fan of telework which I know is a little bit of a controversial topic. Some people are pro, some people are (laughs) against. I have worked remotely for more than 20 years, very successfully. And most of my teams have been all over the world and I'm not going to be looking them in the eyeball anyway. Uh, Often we're supporting global programs. So the folks in the office are not really um, their direct clients or people they're going to interact with. And I've had a tremendous amount of success and, frankly, employee satisfaction. I'm happier teleworking, having that work-life balance, having that flexibility, so I give 120%. And I have found the vast majority of my teams have done that as well. So I'm a big fan of that, and I advocate for that where I can. Yeah, I think that that works really well, too, usually. I think there are some situations, if it's a, if it's a place or a company that's a smaller size and everybody's in the office all day, um, I think sometimes you can still be the trailblazer, but I think there are certain certain times it's just harder as part of the culture. But I think more and more today in all cultures of, of offices, it works really, really well. And if you have the right type of personality for it, I think it can. Um, yeah. And, I, I and it has to be consciously done. I mean, the, I have to concentrate and it, again, it's sort of an art, but on building deep and wide relationships. I have amazing working relationships with folks all over the world who I've never set eyes on. Um, and that takes a lot, you know, you have to consciously build those relationships deep and wide. But if you get good at that, it, it can be pretty effective. And you're right, there's times when you just need to be together in a room, scratching on a whiteboard, um, brainstorming, working through things going out to dinner and getting some cerveza, you know, those are very important. And I don't mean to minimize that, right. but um, these are hard jobs generally uh, in the ethics and compliance field. They can be incredibly high stress. They can be a lot of late hours, um, a lot of thankless, uh, you know, having to deliver news folks don't want. <laughs> yep. So if you can offer that, you can do it in yoga pants a couple days a week. Um, perk. 
it can go a really long way to folks feeling comfortable and confident and sort of staying on this career path. So that's just, that's another one that I'm, I'm a big I, advocate. I, I, I am too. I think it is a great thing. I also think um, when you're empowered to work from remotely as you need to, and there's that trust in you, not only do you value it, it helps you feel really good about the perk. You really do value the time you get in person with people because you not only make it even more useful, it's, mm-hmm. it's enjoyable because you, you know, you're getting to see, it's like you're seeing your friends you haven't seen in a while. Yeah, for sure. And with that, thank you so much for being a friend that I haven't seen in a while and got to speak today. <laughs> and also, I just want to mention to everybody on the call, Gwen is also one of the people who is a judge for the Women in Compliance Awards and has done yeah. a lot of work on that. And it's a wonderful- Congratulations on your nomination. <laughs> that was not why I was putting that out there. I just think it's very <laughs> remarkable what you all do, but you know, it's, 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 you know, it's got a lot of excitement. Um, I mean, I was personally for the podcast, super excited. Um, that's a little selfish. Um, and we do appreciate and Mary and I, all the kind things that people have said to us recently. Um, we hope we can live up to it. Um, and with that, you know, thank you again so much, Gwen, and on behalf of Mary, me, the compliance podcast network, and also our sponsor at corporate compliance insights. Thanks so much and have a great day. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.